You're listening to the Team Guru Podcast, bringing to life the theory and principles of leadership. Hello and welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. This is episode 35. As this episode hits the airwaves, we are all no doubt enjoying the colour and excitement of the Rio Games. And if you're anything like me, you burst with excitement anytime one of our athletes steps up and performs on that grand stage. But one of the things I always think about when I'm watching an event like the Olympics is that for every one of the smiling young faces we see on our TV screens, back here, home in Australia, are scores of athletes that didn't quite make it. Most of them no less committed, no less talented than the lucky few who make it to the athletes' village. And they all have their own story to tell. Stories of injury at the wrong time or a poor performance at the trials that was just slightly off their best or just some plain old bad luck. My guest in this episode has one of those stories to tell. Andrew Mewing is a former swimmer who missed Olympic selection by the narrowest of possible margins, heartbreakingly narrow, on more than one occasion. A couple of his close calls were wonderful learning experiences that propelled him to the next level of his career. But the last of his narrow misses was marred in controversy, and he found himself in court challenging Swimming Australia over his non-selection. But Andrew's swimming career was far from doom and gloom. Between his two failed Olympic bids, he was selected on every single Australian swim team. He represented his country and won medals at World Championships and the Commonwealth Games. Andrew swam during a golden era of Australian swimming. Ian Thorpe, Grant Hackett, Michael Klim and Ashley Callis, just some of the names he was competing against for a spot on the plane to the big show. In the conversation you're about to hear, we talk about Andrew's unusual and late-blooming path to swimming. He talks us through in sparkling detail the races that saw him propelled into the spotlight as an Olympic hopeful, and the races that saw him fall agonisingly short. We get down to the nitty-gritty on what it's really like to swim the 200 freestyle, a notoriously gruelling event that sits somewhere painfully between an all-out sprint and a middle-distance grind. We touch on the much-publicised issue of swimmers who struggle to sleep after late nights of competing, and we talk about how through all the demands of full-time training and travelling the world to compete, Andrew managed to finish two degrees and qualify as a solicitor along the way. But most of all, laced through Andrew's story is a remarkable example of rejecting the option of living with regret, of longing for opportunities so narrowly missed, and instead choosing to move on with life and look back only to relive events and appreciate everything that happened for what it was. I hope you enjoy part one of my conversation with Andrew Mewing.
Andrew Mewing, welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. Thanks, Dave. It's good to be here. Andrew, we're on the, the eve of yet another Olympic Games, the Rio Olympics. You are well and truly retired from your swimming career. When the Olympics roll around, are you a fan just like me these days, or do the Olympics still represent for you an unfulfilled dream? That's a good first question, Dave. Um, bang. Bang, yeah. <laughs> I have to admit, um, every, every four years, it does bring back some pretty interesting memories. Not always bad ones, but uh, certainly it was an unfulfilled dream of mine to have missed the Olympics. But no, I'm, I support the team like, like anyone else. I'm probably just a little bit closer to it, still knowing a few of the guys and girls that are on the team. I still follow the trials. I still follow how people are going internationally and all that sort of thing. But I, I have to admit that I, I'm not glued to the television or anything like that. because of, Like a fan would be? Like a fan would be. No, I'm not. A couple of nights ago on the news, there was these great shots of the Australian swim team arriving in Brisbane for the meet that they just had where Kate Campbell broke the 100-metre uh, the world record and they were collecting all their gear. And I knew we were having this chat today and I thought of you and I thought, I wonder what Andrew thinks when he sees that kind of a scene. Yes, well... I I don't think one way or the other about that sort of thing. I guess I'd been through plenty of experiences of being that fortunate person in years that weren't Olympic years where you get the gear and it's a really exciting moment, whether that be for World Championships or Commonwealth Games or, or whatever else, it's really cool to get the gear. I guess one of the things that it reminded me of though was before 2008, I, I was in the what was known as the Olympic shadow squad before the trials where you had spent a fair bit of time being sized up for the gear and all that sort of thing in advance of the trials. And um, I guess it was, you know, I managed to kind of snatch defeat from the jaws of victory there and I missed the team in the end. So if it reminded me of anything, it's probably the fact that there was gear there ready for me with, in, in name my, with my name on it and in my size, but I, I just happened to miss the team. So that is something that you and I have in common, where neither of us are Olympians, but uh, we went about it very different ways. Of course, you came a lot closer than most of us have come. We're going to talk about your career, obviously, in, in great detail today. One of the facts that is really interesting and really plain is that between the two Olympic Games that you didn't go to, you made every Australian swim team. So between the 2004 Athens Olympics, where you failed to qualify, and we'll talk about that soon, and the 2008 Beijing Olympics, where you again failed to qualify, you went to every major swim meet with the Australian swimming team. Yeah, that's right, Dave. It was, um, I guess that's a bittersweet part of it. I, um, some people look at that and think that's a, a really cruel thing, but um, I, don't, I don't think of it that way. I, was, I feel like it was very fortunate for me to have represented Australia so many times. Um, I guess now with the benefit of a bit of perspective and, and hindsight, you know, it's been eight years since I missed Beijing that I can, I look back at that and I realise that when I was 19 or 20 and I hadn't even made an Australian team, I would have given my right arm to have represented my country just once and I was fortunate enough to do it up to a dozen times, I think it was. Didn't quite reach that pinnacle of the Olympics, which, you know, I guess is something I, I deal with. But if that's the worst thing that happens to me, I'm doing okay. You're right. That's true. And I, I, as I was doing my research for you, I often wondered to myself, is this a guy who's been really struck down by bad luck or is this a guy who's lived a dream life so far? And we'll talk about what the answer is to that question. Of course, you have won a silver medal at the World Championships, a bronze medal at the World Championships, a bronze at the Commonwealth Games, bronze at the Pan Pacific Championships and a host of medals 
at other short course world championships. So you've had a fantastic career. We'll talk about that in some detail as we get to the story of you at both Olympic qualifications. But let's start at the beginning. You, like someone else I had on the show a little while ago, I talked to Trent Grimsley, who's a mate of yours, someone who is obviously the world record holder across the English Channel. He tells a similar story to what you've told me. He wasn't a star swimmer as a junior, which is really difficult to believe. You've told me that you only made a couple of underage national teams. And then as you matured and and grew, you became the real deal. Tell me about yourself as a youngster and as a sportsman at school. Yeah, that's right, Dave. I was a talented swimmer. I guess there's probably no doubt about that. I had the right attributes. Both my parents had been swimmers. I swam a lot as a kid, but I just simply wasn't competitive in my age group. I didn't make national teams. I think what you're referring to there is I, I, I in fact, only went to age national championships twice through my entire childhood. For me as a, as a kid, my parents were very supportive of me being active in a number of different sports and also being very committed to my studies. They were both school teachers. So much to the frustration of my swimming coaches, Rick van der Zandt and uh, Shelley Duyer and Trent Patton, I really wasn't as focused about my swimming as a teenager as they probably would have liked me to have been. I was, when I look back at it now, I, I was a fairly good swimmer. I, the times I swam as an age grouper were good times, but I never won an inter-school championship race. Really? Not even, not even at TAS level. Wow. And at the time I thought, well, I'm a solid but not special swimmer. But uh, the people I was racing at the time were in a phenomenally competitive age group couple of those guys did end up later on going on to represent Australia. One of them, Heath Ramsey, went to St. Edmunds and I went to St. Lawrence's and uh, Heath used to wipe the floor with me at inter-school meets. He ended up representing Australia at the Sydney Olympics, so only two years out of school. I was also really into my rugby because I, well, at St. Lawrence's at the time, it was a big rugby school and um, we grew up with the heroes of like your Brendan Cannons and your Mark Connors. Dan Crowley's, etc. There was a very large number of people who were old boys of the school who were at that time in the Reds and the Wallabies and all that sort of thing. So although I was the best swimmer in my school, I really wanted to be a rugby player. <laughs> <laughs> and I think uh, I was a much better swimmer than I was a rugby player. I just didn't want to believe it for a long time. We've had Trent Patton on the show, of course, and we've had Brennan Cannon. I'm just sitting here realising, geez, we, we're, what a small world it is. That's Brisbane did, for you. <laughs> I didn't realise how many St. Laurie's guys I'd had on the show until you just said that. Well, this is not <laughs> deliberate, by the way. I didn't go to St. Laurie's. It's all accidental. <laughs> Trent's told me a number of times you know, on the podcast and, and just in general conversation, boys are lucky because they can divide their attention between different sports when yeah. they're a youngster. And if they grow to be the right size and they've got the right kind of talent, then a boy can choose to start taking his swimming quite late compared to a girl. When did you start taking your swimming seriously and really get your eye on that green and gold cap? Really late relative to most other people. So like I said, I was, I was really keen on my rugby. I did um, manage to make the first 15 at school, which to me was a big deal looking back at it, it really doesn't matter at all. But at the, <laughs> time, at, the time. At, at the time, it mattered. And then after school, I didn't swim at all. For a couple of years, I was playing Colts rugby up at Souths. What? You didn't swim at all? No, not at all. No, for two years there, I didn't swim at all. I was playing Colts rugby. I was taking it quite seriously. I had in my mind the goal of one day maybe playing semi-professional or professional rugby. 
I was captain of the Colts team, the Colts one, or now they call it Premier Colts up at South. So for me, it was all about the rugby. I loved the rugby. I wanted to be a rugby player. Unfortunately, I was a bit brittle and uh, I'm about six foot five. And at the time, I was six foot five and I weighed about 85 to 90 kilograms oh, right. trying to play second row. There's only one position for you in rugby, isn't yeah, there? Yeah, yeah, that's right. And um, I'd say I was a solid footballer and I ne- would have never made it past the grades looking back at it. But at the time, that was my goal. But I used to get injured a lot. You know, I dislocated my shoulders five times in total. I hurt my ankle, hurt my back. I did all sorts of things to myself. So rugby was the goal. My old man, who had played first grade rugby league back in the 70s, used to just howl at me about how mad I was playing rugby, saying, you're not built for it. Go back to swimming. You should be swimming. You're an idiot. <laughs> and all that sort of thing. And it finally sunk in, I think, in after I graduated from Colts and I tried to play my first year of grade football. So I was only 19 at the time because the age groupings were different back then. And I was still only 19. And I... um was sort of straddling reserve grade and third grade. And in about my third week, I again dislocated my shoulder. And I thought, that's it for me. I'm, my rugby career is over. I um, went and got some pretty intensive physio. And the physio said to me, you used to be a swimmer, didn't you? I said, yeah. Yes, I, yeah, I was okay. And he goes, well, one of the best things for your shoulder, really, from a rehab point of view, would be to just start swimming lightly. Because I guess the science of rehab had improved a bit by then and it wasn't about staying still, it was about moving and keeping everything moving. So that's where it all started in terms of going back to swimming. So I went back to swimming when I was 19, 20 and I was just floating around up at Yoronga Park again, which is where I'd been a member for since I was about nine years of age and I was just a social member of the squad. We had you know some, some real stars in that squad at the time, Robbie Van Der Zandt and Leon Dunn, Rebecca Brown had been in the squad not much earlier than that, and I was just one of the one of the other guys in the squad. But in the intervening years, I guess through my you know the weights I'd done for my footy, a bit of filling out, I'd got a bit bigger and stronger. I just improved rapidly. I improved really rapidly over the course of two or three years to the point where I'd gone from being an you know an absolute sort of nobody you know, with a personal best time of fifty four fifty four and a half seconds for a hundred freestyle to within two and a half years going forty nine seconds. It's incredible. Um, and what year are we talking here? What was what year was it when you went back to the pool casually yeah. after getting injured in rugby? Two thousand one. Right. So where, so two thousand and one, and three years later, you were at the Olympic trials. Yeah, that's right. That's incredible. Yeah. No, I guess it is when I look back at it. At the time, it was one of those things where I, I was improving so rapidly, but I was really training really, really hard. It had got to the point where. I'd improved quite rapidly, but I was still well off the pace. You know, let's say I'd gone from for 54 seconds to 53 seconds. And I thought, how did I do that? You know, when I was in year year 11 and 12, train all summer to go 54 seconds. And here I've trained for sort of eight weeks and I've gone 53. And so a bit of a light went off, went on, sorry, in my head. And uh, both Rick and Trent, who were my coaches at the time, they encouraged me. They said, you know, here's an opportunity Male swimmers can be late bloomers. This is a genuine opportunity for you. And I was also, you know, Rick used to tell me about Mark Stockwell, who another St. Lawrence's old boy, I have, to, I have to add, really late bloomer as well, not a strong school swimmer, within a very short period of time was an Olympic medalist. So I was encouraged by that and I became really focused about it and I became 
very professional about the way I approached my swimming. And I was the hunter, I suppose, because I had nothing to lose. No one expected me to do much. I bet they didn't because you'd, yeah. you'd essentially quit swimming. How far out of the 2004 Olympic trials, the Australian Championships, did you start to get a sense that you were a real chance of going to Athens? I'd have to say probably in the 2003 trials, I'd gone fairly well. I had made a semi-final in the 200 metres freestyle. And I managed to swim in the final of the 100 metres freestyle. I didn't actually qualify for the final, but someone had pulled out. I was a reserve for the final and Josh Watson pulled out. And so I managed to actually swim in the final. I wasn't actually happy with how I'd swum based on how how hard I'd trained that year. But I realised that with the training I'd done and the racing that I'd done, that I was not far off the pace, particularly for a relay spot. So... I'd say about a year out from the trials, I thought, I'm an outside chance here, but it's a real outside chance. And that just made me train as hard as I could. I raced a fair bit. I went to World University Games in 2003. I raced as much as I could. That was probably one thing that I was lacking. And and even if I reflect on one of my weaknesses as a swimmer overall was, although being a late bloomer, you know, you might say that's no impediment. I didn't actually have racing experience in the way that most of my competitors did. So going into 2004, yes, I I started thinking this is a real chance, but I I really didn't know either way how I was going to go at the trials or anything like that. When you turn up to the 2004 Olympic trials, is there any realistic chance of you getting an individual swim spot or are you only shooting for a spot in the relay? No, in 2004, there was no realistic shot of an individual spot. I was, that was really the really the golden age of men's freestyling and swimming Australia at the time. We had uh, Ian Thorpe, Grant Hackett, Michael Klim, Ashley Callis, Eamon Sullivan was coming onto the scene. It was a really, really competitive era and just cracking the top six was would have been a huge effort and I, I wasn't ranked in the top 10 or anything at the time. I think my best ranking was probably 12th in the 100, and I was maybe 18th or 20th in the 200 going into the trials. So at the trials, in the semifinal, you swim a massive PB. Yeah. So you know that they take the top six or seven or eight people to the Olympics. You swim a massive PB to get into the final, qualify third. But earlier in the meet, this had happened. What do you think when you see this picture? Yeah, well, that's Thorpey falling in in the heats of the 400 freestyle on day one. Well, that, that sort of was the start of the week for me and for everyone. The trials, the lead up to the trials had been relatively low key compared to previous years. Because the previous Olympics yeah. had been in Sydney, the so pre- it was a bit of a letdown. Yeah, the previous Olympics had been in Sydney, but the, the whole four-year period after that was, I mean, swimming would give anything for it to be like that again in terms of public profile. The trials were primetime television that was always in the media, Thor Packet. Klimi, Hugel, all those guys were just massive. So although the trials were fairly low-key, all of a sudden they blew up because of what had happened to Thorpey in the heats of the 400 metres freestyle, which was he was the world record holder and the reigning Olympic champion in, and he had failed to qualify for that event because he'd been disqualified for falling in in the heats. I had the 200 metre heats the following morning, and on day one of the trials there was virtually no one there. On the heats of the 200, there were thousands of people there because of all this attention that had 
now been drawn to the trials off the back of, oh my God, Thorpe hasn't even made the team yet type of thing. And um, coincidentally, the event that he was next to qualify for was an event I was trying to qualify for. So absolutely, the, the trials kind of blew up at that point in an unexpected way for a lot of people. And it affected you physically, directly, didn't it? Because qualifying third for that final meant that you were swimming next to Thorpey and you had a goal. You wanted to make the Olympic team, but you had a man next to you who was mightily determined to get into the team and make up for the fact that he possibly was going to miss his pet event, the 400 free. What kind of a physical effect did Thorpey have next to you, swimming in the lane next to you? Well, if I could just um, take back one step, if that's okay. Like I said, I was only the about ranked 20th in Australia in that event at the time. And I, um, I'd swum a, my heat swim, I think I went one, one minute 51 point or something, which was around my PB at the time. I think it might've, I might've even swum a PB in the heats. I can't remember, but it felt so easy. I've just felt awesome. And, um, I'd gone into the meet thinking, well, my target event is the 100. I was, had a much better ranking in the 100. The 200, I'm going to swim. I'm going to give it a crack. It's unlikely I'm going to make the final. It'll be a good hit out for the 100. So I turn up to the semifinals that night and I was really relaxed and confident that I could swim well, but it still wasn't really something I was expecting to make the final. I swam a two-second personal best in one swim, which just doesn't really happen. I went from 151 to 149.4. And I went, yeah, like you say, I was third fastest qualifier for the final. So I went from being a nobody to being third behind Thorpe and Hackett and in front of a whole heap of other guys who were, you know, legends, really, that I hadn't terribly much experience racing against. So there was the physical effect of swimming next to Thorpey, but there was also just the, oh, shit, this wasn't meant to happen. Uh, (laughs) I might be making the Olympics a bit earlier than I expected. What was it like standing behind the blocks next to Ian Thorpe for that race as someone who didn't expect to be there? I think at the time I, I benefited from my, from my naivety and inexperience. It didn't what, trouble me terribly much. In fact, I was pretty fearless about the fact that I'd just won this awesome semi-final. I'm now a real chance of making it tonight. So I can't say that I was scared I was quite excited about that race. I one of the difficulties was that I I was not feeling as strong as I had the day before. I'd had a an awful night's sleep the night before. I had an awful night's sleep the whole week and I'm no Robinson Crusoe there. A lot of swimmers will tell you that it can be quite difficult to sleep during a competition just cuz you're racing late at night and just the anxiety and the nerves and all that sort of thing. I was probably the worst of them, but so I hadn't slept well. I didn't feel terrific the next day, but but still, I was I was confident. And uh, my plan, I guess, was to attack the race and uh, try and keep up with him. <laughs> How did it play out? I kept up with him for about 175 meters, and then I died. <laughs> yeah. Did you time it badly? Yeah, absolutely. It was just a, f- a failure to execute the race properly. I the 200 meters is a is a really special event. I really enjoyed the event because everyone races it differently. There are the guys who are like me, probably more natural sprinters or 100 meter swimmers who are trying to go that further distance. And then there are the guys who are the more distance swimmers like your, um, like your Hackett's or your um, or Thorpe's or Nick Springer's and those sorts of guys who are more natural 400 meter swimmers who are coming down to the 200. So what happens is the race ends up always being quite close 
when in the last lap it's like the day of reckoning where the sprinters meet the middle distance swimmers and it's whoever has the strongest finish versus whoever can hang on. So I'd gone out really, really quite fast. I'd turned third at the 150 mark. Really? And then the piano hit me and I just died. I really don't remember much of the last 15 metres and I haven't. I still to this day haven't brought myself to watch it, but not just because I don't, I'm not interested in watching it, but what I... And what I'm told happened is I was, even if the race was a metre shorter, I would have been top six. It was just the, the guys who came in over the top. I think Craig Stevens came sixth and he was a 1,500 metre swimmer, really strong finisher. He finished sixth and I finished seventh, so I missed out. So they took the top six to the Olympics because they need heat swimmers for the relays, and that's what a lot of people are going to the Olympics for, isn't it? You came seventh. They took the, the top six. You were the only one of the top seven in that final who swam slower in the final than you did in the semi-final. If you had have swum the time that you swam in the semi-final, you would have come sixth in that race. You would have beat Craig Stevens and you would have gone to the Olympics. Do you ever think about that? Oh, of course I do. There's probably a couple of things to say about that. One is that it's in that race, although that's obviously the only one to have gone slower, it's not that uncommon in swimming with the heat semis and finals, particularly in the shorter events in the 100, which we'll talk about, I suppose. Because it's such a dogfight just to get into the final, a lot of the people you know, may swim a PB and just to get into the final, and it's not as easy as it sounds to, you know, it again. to back up your career best swim the following day. So I guess I could be really hard on myself and say, well, if all I'd done is repeated my swim for the night before, I would have made it, but it just wasn't meant to be. I just didn't execute that race the following night it happened again in the 100 as well where my time if I'd have done the time from the semi-final in the final I would have made it in that event too so yeah it is something I think about but it's it's really common and I'm not that's not an excuse I'm making or anything you know I completely own the fact that I didn't make it but um, if you look at a lot of examples throughout swimming where people who benefit from having a bit of margin of safety. You know, for example, Peter Vandenhugenban in 2000 swam the world record in the semis and then went almost half a second slower the next night but still won gold. There are plenty of examples of it. I was just on the cusp. I was on the cusp, so I didn't have that margin for error. And um, unfortunately for me, it resulted in me missing out. So they took the top six to the Olympics. You came seventh. Did you feel burned at that point? Not at all, actually. Not at that point, because I knew I had to stay positive because my best event was the 100, and I had the heats for the 100 the next morning. And I knew it was important to stay positive because I had just absolutely blown myself apart in that 200. I My lactate reading was off the chart. You know, it was I'd really put myself in a lot of pain in that race, being a 100-meter swimmer, probably racing it a little bit too aggressively, and I, and I like racing aggressively, but the way I'd hurt myself that night is that I knew I'd put myself in a lot of pain and I really needed to stay positive about recovering to back up for the next morning. Being a 100, 200 metre freestyle is a fairly gruelling program where you have your heat in the morning on day two, semi that night, final the following night, heat of the 100 the following morning and then semi and final, all things going well. So I'd hurt myself so much in the 200 that I couldn't ruminate about that too much. I had to focus on the 100 and getting myself in a place where I could swim a good enough heat to make the semis and get myself back in the game, I suppose, because I really had 
I really had hurt myself in the 200. It, it was, uh, I couldn't walk afterwards. I don't think people who don't do that sort of thing to themselves physically probably can't really get their head around just how much pain you put yourself through over that period of one minute and 50 seconds. Yeah, I think that's a fair, fair assessment. I mean, sprinting is one thing and endurance is another. It's the 200 freestyle sort of smack bang in the middle of that where everyone races it differently, but you're putting yourself under such anaerobic pressure and you're trying to sustain it for a long period of time. So my lactate reading, I believe, I think after the race was around 20 and um, that wouldn't mean anything to most listeners, but it's really, really high. And I was in, so I, I had to spend a lot of time warming down, getting a massage, just trying to recover for the next morning. Some people are, for some swimmers, it's not an issue for them. Some multiple event swimmers, you know, they're just freaks, you know, like your Michael Phelps's or your Libby Lenton's, Libby, sorry, Libby Trickett's, you know, these guys who can just back up race after race after race. I just wasn't one of those people. And in fact, I don't think I ever backed up well throughout a meet, whether that was, I can't figure out whether that was conditioning or whatever it was, but I just didn't recover terribly well during meet. So for me, it was, I, I was not upset and disappointed about the 200 at the time because I was focused about the 100. Whether it's a half-day energizer session or a comprehensive team and leadership program, Team Guru's unique approach could be just what the doctor ordered for your organization. So as I was saying in the 200, I'd gone out really, really hard. In the last lap, I started to really struggle. I don't remember terribly much, but you get to a point where if you're staying close to Thorpey, it can be a good thing because you can kind of ride off his wake a bit. But once you get a metre and a half behind, you get into this kind of death zone where his kick is just so powerful that it's counterproductive. And that compounded with my already increasing pain <laughs> meant that I, was, I felt like I was swimming still. I, just, he was, I was stuck in the worst part of his wake in the last sort of 75 metres, he'd really put on the neck, he'd really taken it up a gear. I remember actually feeling it, feeling his wake, trying not to think about it, but at the same time, I was just being mowed down by everyone else. I was trying not to think about that either. I was just trying to get to the wall. One of the phrases they use at that point in a race is the piano falling on your back. Does it really feel like you're literally carrying a piano on your back? Well, I don't know if it's a literal feeling of that, but it is a feeling of almost helplessness. I, you know, you train so hard over so long to put yourself in that situation so that you can deal with it properly and maintain your technique and your strength through that period. But if you mistime it, and it's an ever so slight thing, you know, mistiming a 200 meter freestyle could be the case of just kicking that little bit too much in the second 50 or, or not controlling your breathing properly earlier on in the race or, you know, whatever it might be. When you've done it wrong, it goes really wrong. And in my case, it would if I did it wrong, it would go really, really wrong because I was not a natural endurance swimmer. I was more of a sprinter. We've talked about the 200 being right in the middle between a 100 and a 400. And, and often in that race, there are 100-meter sprinters competing against 400-meter distance swimmers. Is it easier for those 400-meter swimmers to come down in distance and try and finish the race strongly than it is for you 100-meter swimmers to try and rein in your speed and finish the race strongly? From my perspective, a 200 is harder for a 100-metre swimmer. But if you spoke to someone like Grant, he would say the 200 is hard to get your speed up in the first place. Because if you don't get your speed up in the first place, 
you're not in the hunt. But absolutely, I guess psychologically for them, their last 50 is always going to be really strong. And the idea of hunting down the bunnies like me in the last lap is um, probably an easier thing to focus on. I mean, having said that, I, you know, over the years experimented with swimming the 200 in different ways. Sort of after 2004, I, you know, looked at swimming it any number of different ways. And I would always regret when I swam it conservatively and in a timid way. There were times when I'd go out as more conservatively with the hope of bringing it home. And occasionally that worked, but other times that didn't work either. So in my own mind, I'd became quite comfortable with the fact that I I enjoyed racing it aggressively. Sometimes I'd hang on and sometimes I wouldn't. 50% of the time I would hang on, 50% of the time I wouldn't. And it was a hard thing to cycle, you know, psychologically, I had to, I just had to come to terms with that, that that's just the way it was. And uh, I tried to train for that and I got better at it, but there were still plenty of examples where, unfortunately, if the race was 180 metres long, I would have been sweet. <laughs> <laughs> and it's nice to know that in when it counted, at that moment when you are in the final, you went out hard. You, you didn't race the conservative race where you try and conserve energy at the beginning and finish strongly. You went out hard and tried to hang on. So that's ballsy and you, you put it all on the line that night and it, it didn't pay off. But it's a great story. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> People and I, tell and me I that. love hearing... I don't know how many listeners are into that kind of detail, but I love hearing about the very specifics of what goes on in a race. And as a yes. fan, as someone who watches it on TV, you sit here and you watch someone die and get mowed down in the last 50 and you think, come on, just swim a bit faster. Yeah, yeah. Completely devoid of the information that it's completely impossible to yeah. do that when your body is filled with lactic acid and yeah. you want to swim faster, but there's just nothing you can do about it. Oh, yeah. It wasn't, uh, if I had a choice, <laughs> if, I, if I had a choice, I would have hung on. Because there's this massive prize at the yeah. end of the, at yeah. the end of the pool. Yeah. All right, so that was a bonus. As interesting yeah. as that is to talk about, the yeah. 200 was a bonus for you. You yeah. found yourself in this real position to go to the Olympic Games yeah. in the 200, which was your number two event. Yes. Yeah. You'd busted yourself. You'd put it all on the line in the final of the 200 that night. But the next morning you had to wake up and do it all again in the, the heats of the 100. Hmm. How did that play out? Well, uh, like I said, I'd, um, I'd really blown myself apart in the 200. So when I woke up the next morning, I was shattered. I felt not mentally shattered. I think I was pretty good at staying positive, but physically I, was, I wasn't I was in great nick. I felt pretty rubbish. But I managed to sort of get myself up and swim a half-decent heat and qualify through for the semi-final, I think in 12th or 13th place or something. I swam a, a strong enough time. Throughout that day, I rested up as much as I could. I was a, a terrible sleeper uh, throughout my entire swimming career. Couldn't steal a daytime nap like the rest of the guys. I just wasn't very good at it probably thinking too much. But that night I I backed up and I, I swam a personal best time. I cracked 50 seconds for the first time, which these days is not very impressive. But back in 2004, it was still considered... A real barrier. A barrier. Was uh, it like the 10 second barrier for 100? Well, close, I guess. Certainly, I was, only, I was only the sixth Australian to do it and the third Queenslander to do it. So it was a big deal. It put me in the all-time top 10 at the time. So I'd broken 50, which was always sort of the pinnacle at the time. Didn't take very long for the sands to shift and people like Sullivan to really take it into the next level over the next few years. But at that time, it was a big deal. So I'd, I'd done that and I thought, well, here we go. I'm back in the game. I'd qualified fifth for the final. So it wasn't the same level of ridiculous kind of pressure of being third qualifier. 
it was very, very close. Everyone who had made the final, particularly the say the tail end of the, that final, we were all within 0.2 of a second of each other in qualification time. So it was all, always going to be a bit of a tight one. That's just the 100 free. That's just the way it is. But I, I thought, no, I can, I can do this. I just need to get some rest, which I didn't. <laughs> I just couldn't sleep. Just couldn't sleep, no. So I was just, just nerves, probably just the roller coaster of the week. They didn't have sleeping tablets back then. No, Which is I a just, whole other story. A whole, in other, Australian whole other story, yeah. So, yeah, I and, and again, it's not that unusual. You know, I wasn't the only person who wasn't unable to sleep at a swimming carnival. I mean, you hear, you hear um, people like you know Novak Djokovic after he wins Wimbledon, and he says, "I didn't get a, a minute sleep last night." It happens. It was just one of those things. But for me, never being terribly good at backing up in the first place, having six really intense races back to back and no sleep in and, between and not and very little sleep in between by the six one the 100 freestyle the tank was empty and i just i just didn't perform i didn't execute my race on the night what happened how'd the race play out well we all swam slower that night it was a really slow final i can't remember the specific times of everyone but i do know that i think thorpe and callus tied i can't remember for first but even they swam a bit off their best. And then Todd Pearson came third, but he he only went 50.0, which is slower than what I'd gone the night before and a hell of a lot slower than he'd gone and his PB. And then it was just a blanket finish between sort of third and eighth, and I happened to be seventh again. So I failed to execute on the day, simple as that. How many 100-metre swimmers did they take to the Olympics? Uh, six as well. So you missed out by one spot on two occasions. Yep. Just so our listeners who may not be over the details of the way that relays work, the big lure for, for people in your position to go to the Olympics is that you might swim a heat in the relay at the Olympics. But of course, you get the medal, don't you? Well, there's two parts to that, is that getting in the top six is your gateway to the team, obviously. But if you were, say, the sixth fastest swimmer, but then you were the one showing the form at the Games you would have every opportunity to be in that final four, swimming in the relay in the final. That's the way it was back then. So there were a couple of occasions later in my career where I was not the fast, not in the fastest four at the trials, but happened to be in the fastest four at the meet. They would pick on form, proven performance as a relay swimmer, because swimming in relays is quite a different style of swimming, which maybe we can talk about. So yes, making the top six, it you know, obviously just being an Olympian, you know, I would have gone as the mascot if they'd take me, would have been awesome in any capacity. But even if I'd have finished sixth, the goal would have changed from just having a heat swim to putting yourself in the frame to be in the in the top four and try and swim in the final. That's really interesting. So I, I didn't think about that real competitive spirit that obviously you would take to the Olympics. You're not just going there thinking, oh, I might get a relay swim in the no, heat of course not. And, I'll get a, and, and I'll get a medal when the, the big boys go out and, and do the real deal. You're going along thinking, I'm going to get a, a swim in the heat of the relay and if I really step up, I might get myself a spot in that final. 100%. That's how it would work I've every year. i thought about that. What a goose. All yeah. right, obviously. <laughs> And part of the, the thinking here is when people like Hackett and Thorpey go to the Olympics and they've got a lot of events, they like to take people to swim in the heats of the relays so they can give those guys a rest, give them one less swim to do. Absolutely. And that was the way it always was back then. The criteria has changed a bit recently, I understand, but they used to always take six. And the reason for that was the multiple event swimmers 
it would make sense to rest them from the heats. And so what would happen is, you know, in 2004, for example, they rested Ian and Grant. And then that morning, the other four guys raced, effectively raced each other while they were racing together. And the two fastest out of them got to swim in the final. And that was the way it always was. So I'm, I'm looking at the, the guys that swam the heats of the 4x200 at the Athens Olympics. Does it make you feel good, less of a loss, to know that none of those guys swam slower than you did at the trials? I haven't really thought about it like that. No, look, once I'd missed out, I mean, I just had to own it, didn't I? I'm not the sort of person who would be wishing any of those guys to not swim well. I was friends with them. I was quite literally the first person to miss out on the team. So I I had been taken with the team to train with them in Flagstaff for a month beforehand. Flagstaff in Arizona, which is altitude training. I genuinely wanted them to go well. So no, I don't think so. I mean, by the same token, I, you know, you're a competitive animal as a swimmer. I also would have, in my own mind, been convinced that I would also have swum faster at the games. Yeah, I bet. That event in particular interests me. And, and just as a, as a note, it's, it's such a fabulous position for Australia as a powerhouse of world swimming, really, to be in that they can roll out four completely separate swimmers for the heats and know they'll still make the final and then bring in Thorpe and Hackett to swim in the final. Now, we qualified second in the heats for the final in, the, in a time of seven minutes and 14 seconds. And then we came second in the final to the USA in a time of seven minutes and seven seconds. So you can see the improvement yeah. in the time as, as Hackett, Klim and Thorpe come into the final. Only yeah. Nick Springer swam the heat and the oh, final. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. But here, I want to show you another photo. Tell me what's going on here. I know you weren't at the games, but to me, this is a really classic photo. So they won the silver medal uh, yeah. <laughs> to the USA in the games. And we're looking at a photo now, which I'll yeah. put on the podcast page for this episode of Hackett, Klim, Springer and Thorpe standing yeah. on the dice with the silver medal around the neck. Yeah. What are you seeing? Oh, just utter devastation for the guys because they'd only narrowly missed the gold. I think it was the first time they'd given up the throne in a number of years. They'd won in Sydney. They'd beaten America every other year before Athens. But what it, I mean, what it really reminds me of is, um, you know, one of my dad's favourite sayings is it's, it's all relative. And so, you know, me missing the games was, was massively disappointing in the moment. Was it more disappointing for me than it was for those guys so narrowly missing gold on the relay? I don't know. I wasn't there. But I see uh, Michael Phelps grinning like a goon next to him. and <laughs> yeah, a very young Michael Phelps. Very young Michael one Phelps. One of his first gold medals at the Olympics. Yeah. And, uh, and Thorpe, they're just not looking happy. Actually, no. I posted an article on LinkedIn a little while ago about the psychology between winning a silver and a bronze. Yes. They know, they've done lots of studies yeah. to suggest that people who win bronze medals are a lot happier than yeah. people who win silver medals. Yeah, I'd believe that. A bronze yeah. medalist thinks, oh, awesome. I could so easily have not won a medal at all. Yeah. So they're happy. Yeah. A silver medalist thinks, oh, I came so close to winning a gold. Well, that, that race in particular, I, I do remember watching it and the lead changed a number of times and Thorpe had dived in second and everyone was expecting the same superhuman effort he pulled out for them over the previous sort of six years and he did do a phenomenal swim, but the American bloke, Cleek Keller, actually swam a faster last lap than Ian and took the lead back, which just unbelievable really and no one was expecting it and certainly no one's no one's blaming Ian he swam an amazing swim but it was probably the shock of that as well that really hurt those four blokes 
they probably thought they had. They were banking on Thorpe. They probably thought they had the gold, and it just didn't happen for them. And again, it's like swimming's. If you've been a, a swimmer or any professional or semi-elite athlete, and you haven't tasted bitter disappointment, then I don't believe you exist. <laughs> so it's everywhere. So the 2004 Athens Olympics are done and dusted. You didn't go. But you've well and truly got your eyes cast on the 2008 Beijing Games. There's a long time in between Olympics, isn't there? Do you go straight to the pool after the disappointment of missing the Games and start your four-year campaign, or do you at least have a break? Well, for me, it was, you know, the 2004 and 2008 experiences were so different. In 2004, I was, like I said, I was the hunter. I was the outsider. I'd narrowly missed out, which was, you know, massively disappointing to me. But at the same time, I was really encouraged about how I'd gone. Like I'd swum massive PBs in my events. I just was unable to replicate the PB the following night in in each time. So I figured the best way to deal with it was just to get on with it. The focus for me became to, you know, there was a world short course championships coming up after the Olympic Games was to try and qualify for that. That would have been my first Australian team. It was to go on the training camps with the Olympic guys and, you know, just just be a good sport about the fact that I'd missed out and to um, support the guys and um, train with them and push them as hard as I could. So for me, it wasn't a case of, well, it's all about 2008 for me now. In fact, it was probably the opposite where I had some pretty difficult decisions to make where I was almost finished my law degree. I was, although I was a late bloomer to sport, I was 22 or turning 23, I had some sort of more more general career crises to deal with than my swimming, and I decided that I was not going to put all my eggs in the basket of swimming. I was going to do my absolute best, but I, I really wanted to make sure that I didn't end up being one of those guys who gets to their sort of late 20s, early 30s, and goes, oh, oh shit, what do I do? Yeah. And that just wasn't my style anyway, because I was quite serious about my other career. So for me... I wasn't. It wasn't all about 2008. I thought I'm going to do my very best to actually go that next step and crack the teams. In any given year, making the team of that year is a really big deal. You know, to the non-swimming community, it's you know you're either an Olympian or you're not, and you know it, that upsets me a little bit. But that's just the way it is. Whereas in in a particular year, in a given year, it's the same swimmers trying to qualify for the same Australian team trying to swim at the same international standard of meet. Although I guess, you know, the Olympics does get a bit faster just because of how important it is to the general population. But for me, yeah, the next focus for me was making the world championships. I wasn't thinking that the whole thing would be a waste of time if I didn't make 2008, to put it that way. One of the really interesting things about your story is that while all of this was going on at the pool and you're doing your nine or 10 or 11 sessions in the pool, which always blows me away how much swimmers have to train. There's very few sports that call on someone to spend so much time training. You were also studying and you finished a Bachelor of Laws. You finished a Bachelor of Commerce degree during that time period. How did you juggle those two enormous commitments? Well, for me, it was a fairly normal thing to do because I'd been a fairly academic person. OP1, finished school with an OP1. For those of you outside of Queensland, you don't do any better than an OP1. So you were one of the top 3% of Queensland students. Is that right? Yeah, something like that. Or is it 1%? Yeah, maybe it was 1%. I don't know. Who's counting? (laughs) So that's, I mean, that's amazing, Andrew. Let's let's just dwell on that for a second. So you were about to go 
to the Olympic trials and, and we just told the story about that. But at the same time, you're one of the, the brightest young students in the state as well. So you're a real achiever. Oh, thanks. Um, <laughs> yeah, I guess um, it had always been important to me to do well in school. My keep talking about my parents, but my, my dad was fairly strict guy by well, particular by modern standards, he'd be very strict. By the standards of when I was growing up, he'd be fairly strict. And he was a school teacher at the school at St. Lawrence's where I went. And um, he was fairly strict about me studying a lot at school, which became a natural thing for me. I And I thank him for it now. At the time, I hated him for it, but I thank him for it now. So for me, I was studying my you know my commerce and law which was what I would do and you know so many of my good friends and contemporaries were from uni and I wasn't really very interested in letting them sort of pass me by just because you were swimming just because I was swimming so it wasn't it was maybe a little bit of selfishness there or focus I don't know I certainly found it difficult I spent an entire I'd say out of my five and a half years it took to get both degrees which is a little bit longer than it should take because of my swimming, about three and a half years of that, I didn't attend class. <laughs> oh, really? How did you do that? Just self-discipline of reading myself and from time to time stealing notes off my mates. Was it because it literally clashed with swim sessions or because you were just too travel. tired to get to travel? Right? Travel. Yeah, clashing with swim sessions, travel, and I guess I was just trying to make the most effective use of my time and I wasn't a I wasn't terribly good in lectures. I wasn't a great note taker. I would be probably sometimes too tired to pay attention properly. So I, f- I worked out that the best thing for me was to almost periodize when I would focus on my studies and I would be quite intense at times where I'd put aside maybe two or three weeks in a different phase of my training cycle where I would just at home study for 12 hours a day and sort of catch up and make sure I was all over it. I do remember more than one time turning up to an exam and my mate's gone, I didn't even know you did this subject. <laughs> <laughs> so was it more common than not for swimmers to be completely committed to swimming and not studying on the side? Was what you were doing fairly rare? Yeah, it was fairly rare, but um, particularly at the time. There were a lot of people who were, say, at the Institute of Sport or, or wherever else, and for them it was training followed by breakfast, followed by gym, followed by sleep, followed by training, followed by bed type of thing. I think now, particularly, say, through the efforts of the Australian Swimmers Association, a few of those other bodies in other sports, there's been a, a bit more of a push about thinking about your career afterwards. For me, I just knew I wasn't going to make a living out of swimming, and I wasn't expecting to. Not many do. Not many do. And I guess also just with my own interests and what interests me and what keeps me motivated and all that sort of thing is I just don't even think I could have just been a swimmer. You know, I enjoyed study to an extent. I enjoy learning. I was pretty keen to have a successful career after the swimming ended, so I didn't want to leave myself too far behind when I finally decided to take that step. So you could certainly look back and be satisfied with what you did outside of the pool while you were swimming, because you've now got a career, and we can talk about that later. But is there any part of it and, and that's unequivocal. You, you've obviously done the right thing and you've set yourself up for life beyond swimming, clearly. But there was there any part of you that was jealous of your squad mates who would just go home after swimming and have breakfast and go to the gym and have a sleep and come back to their afternoon session refreshed while you were hitting the books and going to university? Do you think they had an advantage over you in a pure swimming sense? 
Yeah, I'd say definitely it got to the point there where, you know, in retrospect, I could have tempered it a bit more, particularly in the last few years there between, say, 2005 and 2008. I was studying and working in a law firm part-time right. and trying to train full-time. So there was just no room for a nap there anywhere. <laughs> and it's yes. all about the sleep, huh? Yeah, it was, yeah, the recovery. Yeah. yeah, so the recovery between training, which um, the science of that is far more recognised in a more general sense now than probably was then. Like then, of course, everyone knew you needed to rest up between sessions but there was also a bit of that old school, well, how tough are you? Oh, really? Type of thing. Yeah. Well, I didn't have a sleep today on oh, tough. Oh, no not, not, no, not that I didn't have a sleep today, but big focus on mental toughness and your ability to just deal. And I really prided myself on that as a trainer. And I felt like I, I felt like it didn't affect my training. I would get to training in the afternoon after having been at work or having been at uni and, you know, the switch went on and I was... Good to go. Good to go. Yeah. And that was part one of my conversation with Andrew Mewing. What a story. As I said in the intro, it's timely to remember that for every one of those smiling faces we see beam across our television screen during the Olympics, there are scores of stories about the athletes who aren't there. But what a story is Andrew's. And that was only half of it. I love his clarity of thought, the incredibly intelligent way he describes his experiences. For someone who could well have folded in the face of his near miss at the Athens trials, Andrew is a study of positivity and constructive reflection. I will, as always, share the lessons I took from this episode on the Lessons Learned page for the podcast. You know where to find it, on the Team Guru website, that's teamswithans.guru forward slash podcast. And on the next episode, part two of the Andrew Mewing story, we'll talk about his move away from the only pool and coaching staff he'd ever known in order to join Grant Hackett's squad on the Gold Coast. The decision, making the decision to do it, was a horrendous experience. And I was friends with Grant and had been for a while, and he was really keen to have a new training partner. Grant said, well, come down and train with me and you know, live with me. It was an amazing experience, really, to sort of go through that and, and see the big man in action. We talk about his second crack at making an Olympic team at the trials for Beijing and how and why he ended up taking Swimming Australia to the court of arbitration. Yeah, it all got a little bit ugly, probably a bit uglier than I wanted it to, but I felt it was the right thing to do. And of course, we talk about his post-swimming career, his path to starting his own law firm and the lessons he's been able to take away from swimming and inject into the business world. More and more and more, I find myself tapping into my experience as a swimmer to help my team, my firm, and my clients in trying to, I guess, lead them in goal setting, in staying relentlessly focused on what the goal is. So much more to come. I hope you can join me for the next episode. And if you like what you heard today, jump onto the website or iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher and have a look at all the guests I've had on the show over the past year, I have no doubt there'll be something there to tickle your fancy. 
My name is David Frizzell. Thanks for joining me on this, my mission to bring to life the theory and principles of leadership. I'll be back next week for part two of the Andrew Mewing story. Bye for now. Bye for now.